So what we are busy with, just to get everybody focused in the right places again, is we're busy with a process of equipping every saint to be able to share and witness to the true gospel. The Bible says that one of the signs of the end time, one of the things that will happen in the end time is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Preached in all the world. Now, this is very important to understand. We know that in the past, missionaries went out from especially the UK and the European countries to Africa, the East, and they did bring a gospel. There was a time when it was probably there was probably the greatest effort um, made by missionaries to take the gospel to places. Now, recently we've I've been communicating a lot with pastors in Pakistan. Very interesting. There's about four million Christians registered in Pakistan. They divided about fifty-fifty between Protestants and Catholics, and so there's two million. Protestants, more or less, sounds like a lot. They make up something like 4% of the total population. So they're a small minority. The reason that there is Christians in Pakistan is because it used to be a British colony. And so British missionaries, a lot of British missionaries went and worked in Pakistan. Actually, there was one time when they were actually just India and later on got divided into Pakistan from India. And um, they mostly made uh, proselyte lights uh, out of the lower costs. They still have a cost system where you're born into a cost. Uh, it's like a, many different classes. And so up until today, most Christian believers are actually the poorer classes, the working classes. And that's why these Christians, they get born into a Christian family, and they distinguish themselves from uh, Muslims. It's an Islamic country. And uh, there's also a small Hindu minority with all the other minorities. And that's why they're Christian. But they are extremely devoted to missionary work. Now, I've started doing some... Uh, there's some interaction with some of them. Some of them want me to mentor them. And uh, the first thing I test is I give them a combination of scriptures and say, what do you see? And one of the tests I use is the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Yeah. And you can give them the same everywhere. The same with the guys in Kenya, Uganda, no matter where you go. You can give them all the clues and they'll go read it and still not arrive at the answer. And this is the problem with the gospel that went out into the world. It was a very simplified um, version of some of the things the Bible might be saying that was taken into the world. Uh, literally, people thought that the tr what the Bible said was too complicated for people, and I believe that a lot of those that knew the bigger truths thought they'd make it simple for people, and um, this is the terrible situation that we are dealing with today. And that is why we are in the process of getting to understand and grasp the true gospel. So that we still first have a solid framework in our own minds. 
a reference framework so that we will not go and accidentally uh, veer into this what's called the simple gospel um, that's actually not the true gospel. And we've worked hard to get the aspects of that gospel out of our minds. Okay. So that's the process we're in just to update everybody. And we are using a strategy where we are, whenever we speak to people about anything, we want to connect the end of the Bible to the beginning of the Bible. Because what the church has done is up there. Okay. What Christianity has done, it started with the old church fathers. I was partaking in a debate yesterday. One of the guys said, yes, but the early church fathers believed this and this. It's referring to the second and third century church. And I simply said to him, I don't care what they believed. If they were wrong, they were wrong. I don't care if they're old, it doesn't mean they were right. Okay, the Bible, we have the Bible today. We don't have to stick to what the church father said it was. We can study the Bible. The Bible says what it says, and we can correct where they didn't understand. Simple as that. Okay, so what the church fathers did is that they came up with a linear timeline because that's the perspective from where we live. For those that's gone through it, we cannot do this often enough. Okay, this is the framework we implanted into our minds. We, is the, it guides every thought. Okay, so what they did is they came up with a linear timeline because we are stuck in a linear timeline. And then they started applying the eternal word of God to a linear timeline. And what they did in the process is they changed an eternal God from being eternal to somebody that's also... Um, afflicted and bound by time, mm. which is not. So they, we, obviously there's a beginning, the Bible says, in the beginning, but they took that as the beginning of all things that pertain to us. And then they put the church, yes, the cross did happen more or less 2,000 years ago. They put the cross on a linear timeline, and then of course there's an end. Everybody's still debating what that end looks like. <laughs> I don't understand. The Bible tells us exactly what the end looks like. So, now why this happened is, we explained how the eye works. The eye can only focus on a very small point, like literally smaller than the end of that pen. That's how you can focus. You cannot do anything to change that. So you can focus on a very small area and your brain is going to fill in everything surrounding that picture. You're not actually seeing it. You're seeing a blurry image. And because that's a truth for the way we see and the way we understand, to make it easy for people, they, they took the focal point of the word and they just focused everything on this point right there. And because people are generally quite lazy, this caught on very quickly. It was a very popular thing that they did. And so now Christians could only focus there. And then the other focal point is heaven. So faith became, I get saved by the cross and then I'm going to go to heaven. And that was about it. In between we go to church. <laughs> and now when people like us come and we want to show people that 
the word of God and the plan of God is much bigger, much more interesting and much more exciting, they go, don't mess with our simple gospel. We are going to mess with the simple gospel because the true gospel is much more exciting. And so what we're busy doing is we're teaching everybody that in witnessing to the gospel, we need to bend their timeline out of time so that God can again be almighty and outside of time the way that he does exist. And we show this from scripture over and over. And when you do this, when you bend the timeline, we can correct understanding regarding covenant. What is covenant? Covenant is the agreement between believers and God. God and believers. It's like a contract. Now, I can gather 500 believers from every church in our area and ask them what is the new covenant and I'll wager you a thousand rand we will not find one of them that can actually explain the new covenant to you. It's actually something that's not taught. Why not? Because if in theological school, anywhere you go, they're going to teach everything from the perspective of a linear timeline. And once you have a linear timeline, you can never understand covenant. It's not possible. Once you have a linear timeline, you are forced to misunderstand the Bible, the entire Bible. Why? Because they've divided the Bible into Old Testament and New Testament. And this insinuates an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. And then they've taught us, don't worry about the Old Covenant, it's been cancelled. If you just believe in, they call him Jesus, in Yahushua, then you find You are automatically in the New Covenant. Don't worry about the law. The law was cancelled in Yahushua. Nobody can tell you exactly when the law was cancelled. Was it when he died on the cross? Was it when he was baptized? Was it when he was resurrected? Was he, was, is it when he went back to heaven? Or how does it work? Well, the Bible actually tells us exactly when it was cancelled. Not cancelled, fulfilled. So the Lord himself says that the law is not cancelled but fulfilled. And that's why it is so important to understand the concept. Listen carefully. Understand the concept of in Messiah. Now if you start looking in the Bible for verses that speaks about in Messiah, you realize it's everywhere. In Messiah. Okay. This is what becomes so... Most people are in the church. We want to convince people to be in Messiah. And the only way that that happens is if He calls you into Him. He's not just going to take anybody into Him. The reason... We're all wearing masks is because you're not inviting a coronavirus in. <laughs> Yet, Christianity has insisted that God is trying to save everybody, He's inviting everybody in, and He's failing miserably. Isn't that the gospel that's been preached? So we ended up with a God that's no longer almighty or capable. We ended up with a God that cannot save because if you look at the percentage out of every generation that's saved, we're not doing great, are we? So they came up with, well, man has been given free will. No, that was the fall of man. 
the possibility of free will existed. God didn't give it to, to us to use. Nothing in the Bible says He gave you free will. He said, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of its fruit. Before they ate of the tree, they never needed to make a decision. They needed, never needed to weigh anything up. They only had to know what God knew. They only had to know what God had told them. That's all. Wouldn't that be bliss? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we only knew the things of God and nothing else? Wonderfully, He gave us baptism so that we can die to ourselves. And again, Christianity, the false gospel says, well, it's a symbolic death. You believe in Him, then you get saved. Then as a sign that you do believe and you are saved, you get symbolically uh, baptized. And what does that do? The whole thing is you proving to God that yeah. you have accepted you, His you accept him. to get saved. So we get to accept Him. He doesn't have a choice. The moment I decide to accept Him, He's got to come and live in my heart. That gospel doesn't make any sense, does it? Okay. So now... This is what we want to be aware of. We want to be careful of the mindset that's going to lead people astray. Because the purpose of correcting it is so that God can be who God truly is. Otherwise we end up with a God that's trying to save everybody. Now if God wanted to save everybody, everybody would be saved. He's almighty. So there's got to be something wrong with the picture. Do we understand that? And we are in a process where we, get, we have to make sure that every one of you understand how that picture really fits together. There's no anomalies in the Bible. The Bible agrees with the Bible. There's nothing that doesn't agree. Okay, so. So we need to bend. In, in witnessing to someone, we need to firstly try and make them see that their timeline doesn't work. Not when it comes to God. Makes sense. Then we can start to open up the plan of God. Okay, and we can do it in various ways. We've looked at it. Firstly, the biggest tool that you want to keep in mind, you don't always have to use it, but you want to have it in mind, is the book of life. Because the book of life becomes the most important thing on judgment day. I know that the general truth and idea is that because we are in Him, we are not going to be rejected. It's true. But the Bible says on the Day of Judgment, the Great White Throne Judgment, that the Book of Life, which is also the Book of the Lamb, is opened. And because the names are written in the Book of Life, we are accepted and not rejected. This is biblically correct. Yet, again, something that is hardly ever taught about. Most people don't even know about the Book of Life. Now, the book of life is very important in the end. And then it says something very interesting. It says that God wrote our names in the book of life before the foundations of the earth. And He chose us in Him before the foundations of the earth. Now, you take that truth and then you try and believe the gospel that has been preached and the two doesn't agree with each other. So what do we end up with as believers? We just think, well, I don't understand how it works. The reason we don't understand is because it doesn't work. It cannot work. Okay? doesn't work. So if the book of life is in the end of the Bible, and the book of life existed before God started creating anything, think about what I'm saying. Then we have a very significant truth here. 
How could God write the names of his sons and daughters in the book of life before he created the earth? Because he knows everything in advance? Then why are we preaching the gospel? So we're not saying that you don't have to do anything. He knows who he saved and that's it. That's not what we're saying. That's why we're still preaching the gospel. Okay. Now we start to unfold this. So we first want to keep in mind the book of life is in the end of the Bible and the beginning of the Bible, before anything else. And he chose us in him before the foundations of the earth. And he promised salvation, the Bible says, in Messiah before he created the world. Why would he promise salvation before man has sinned? We have to deal with these questions. Makes sense. Okay. Now today we're going to show you how all of this is very important for the understanding of grace. Another aspect of the Bible, an eternal truth, grace is written everywhere in the Bible, and what they have gone and done is they explain grace as unmerited favor. And what do we end up with? Again, an unjust God. With that gospel that says it's unmerited favor, we're going to end up with a God that is no longer... Is the word I'm looking for? Fair. Fair. Because if, if, if grace means unmerited favor, listen carefully. If grace means unmerited favor, then it means that if he's fair and just, he has to give unmerited favor to everybody. What happens when unmerited favor is directly connected with justification. You cannot separate justification and grace from each other. So if God gives unmerited favor to me, and he doesn't give it to my neighbor, then we have a big, big problem. So grace cannot be unmerited favor. It could be an aspect of grace, but it cannot be the definition of grace. Now another definition that they love, I don't know who coined it, it wasn't the Bible, it wasn't Paul, it was nobody in the Bible. They coined another phrase for grace, and that is that God gives you what you don't deserve, instead of giving you what you do deserve. It's true as an idea for a believer, but it can still it cannot be the definition for grace. Does it make sense? Okay, so we're going to look at grace right now. Now, let's read a few scriptures. We're going to put the scriptures on the board there. And then we're going to work our way from there all the way back to there. You are going to have to concentrate because... Sorry. We, unfortunately, we no longer teach a simple, easy gospel. We know that if you are a son or daughter of God, then you can understand this. Okay. And you're going to write. No, you can write. You write better than me. Okay. So do you want to... Okay, first let's read the, mm. the two anchor scriptures. Then you can take us from there. <clears throat> We're in the book of Ephesians. I just want to make something clear, just I'm aware of the fact that there's one or two people here that hasn't really been here. It's not that we are criticizing or judging the church. We have a great, great love and affection for God's people. 
We do, however, despise lies and things that are not true. We, my, my, my attitude would always be that if somebody is leading God's people, they should be leading them into all truth. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, are they my friend or my enemy? Sure. Until they repent, they must be an enemy. If people are deceiving God's people, out of ignorance, some of them don't know what they're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, why are you leading God's people? So one of the processes that I've started with those pastors in other countries, especially Africa countries, I've started a process with them where we start discussing the scriptures. <clears throat> and if they don't know what it says, my word to them is, young man, why are you leading God's people? Why are you preaching to them if you don't know the Bible yet? It's the only way we're going to bring correction. And you know what? The attitude out there is wonderful. They go, I need to be taught. And we can teach them. So a person that's been, that's actually leading a church out there, five times the size or ten times the size of this church, if they don't know the Bible, I rebuke them, many of them come and say, then teach me. So there's hope. There's hope. Okay. Okay. So our two anchor scriptures are both from Ephesians chapter 1. The first is chapter 1, verse 22. Well, 22 and 23 as a unit. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the second is verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So while she's writing, we're going to consider, just for your consideration... If we are going to ask the question, what is the gospel of your salvation that Paul is speaking about when he's speaking to the church in Ephesians, then obviously we're going to have to look at the letter to the Ephesians and everything that it says, and it will give us all the clues that we need to understand what that gospel is. If we end up with the gospel of your salvation that doesn't include all the specific details, important details of the letter of Ephesians, then something's wrong with our gospel. doesn't make sense. But if we take the gospel of your salvation, we consider everything that is written in sequence and in order sensibly <coughs> in the book of Ephesians, and we, what, we, what we end up with adds up with the gospel of salvation and what the book says, then we can start to assume that we are seeing the true gospel. Makes sense. Okay. Okay. So... Um do you want me to pose the questions here first? Or we can mm. Pose the questions. Okay. So when we look at... So, okay, the important thing we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, is it says, and he put all things under his feet. We're going to look at that. And then in verse 13, it says, enemy also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So it would be a valid question to ask, what is the word 
truth. Then he continues to say the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What is that? And then it says, uh, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, once we believed, what does it mean? Sealed with the First, verse 22 is concerned just with the fullness. The body has the fullness. Okay. So what we do is we start focusing on key aspects of the verses. It helps our mind to grab onto something. With other words, we just know we're not going to be on slippery ground. We're going to find ourselves nice and stable, our feet anchored on something, our understanding, our attention anchored. What we always try and do is anchor ourselves, our, our anchor our focus. Okay, now, let's have a look at that fullness of Him who falls all in all. We first have to ask the question, what does this verse really say? If we see it says, the fullness of Him who falls all in all. Look at the verse, and then we want to find an answer together. What is the fullness according to this verse? It says, and he, and he put all things under his feet. So the Father, Yahweh, put all things under the feet of Yahushua, his son, and gave him, Yahushua, so the Father gave Yahushua to be head over all things to the assembly or the gathering, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so now we can actually find some answers. Uh, Marnas, when you look at this, what would you say the fullness is? Good enough, that's good. It isn't the easiest of verses to look at. And what our brains normally do, listen carefully, you want to watch out for this in your private Bible study time. What our brains does is when we encounter something that's too difficult for us at the moment to understand, seems complicated, the wording, the concepts are difficult, we tend to skip over it. Or we just put an old understanding, might not be the right understanding, we put an understanding placeholder in its place. That's what we do. This verse is difficult because it is a verse that only works outside of time. That's why we put so much emphasis on outside of time. It only works 
you can only understand it if you understand outside of time. If you don't understand outside of time, and we, for those who don't know what outside of time is, we're going to explain it again today. If you don't understand outside of time, this verse cannot be understood or interpreted. And so what we are forced to do is skip over it. Because we want Yahushua to be the fullness. How can the body be the fullness? See, because of the timeline thing that they did, they separated in reality believers from Messiah as God. We do believe in Him, but we kind of standing over here, and He's over there, and all we want to do is see as much of His glory as possible, and we would like Him to see me. <laughs> so, we read in Messiah, in Messiah, in Messiah all the time. But when it comes to our understanding, we still want to understand me here and Him over there. And that's why this verse will never make sense. So, although the Bible says one body, one baptism, one faith, one spirit, we still don't get the, the one thing. The, what is one? What exactly is one? And that's why. So, let's have a look at it again. We have to come to an agreement here. Does it say that the body or the assembly or the church is His fullness? If you have doubt, look at the scripture again. Does anybody want to um, try and guess how many people got saved from the moment the gospel was first preached by the apostles, John and Peter, up till now? It, it must be quite a few. So then we have to ask the question. In the first week... After Peter preached the gospel from the rooftop of the house, we know that 3,000 was baptized on that day. Now, when the 3,000 was baptized, plus the 120 in the upper room, plus maybe a few that encountered Yahushua in the three years that he walked the earth, so let's say there was in total maybe 4,000 people who believed. Could they have been the fullness of Messiah? Weren't they lacking a few hundred thousand members? <laughs> now when, listen carefully, when Paul wrote these words to the church of Ephesians, that's, only, that's less than 60 years later. So now, so many more people than the 4,000 got saved that he can say, now you are the fullness of Messiah. <laughs> so every one of us that was added later, we're just extras. <laughs> bonus. The bonus feature. So if he wrote to the Ephesian church 1,940 years ago, you are the fullness of Messiah, then why do we still need to get saved if it's full? And if we look towards the end of time when all is saved, 
wouldn't it just, wouldn't the full body of Messiah only become the full body of Messiah when the last person is saved? Which does put us in an awkward position since we are his body, which means that until the last person is saved, he's like half a body. Yeah, but that's how it worked like when I was born. My arm was born, and then two days later, <laughs> no, but came the leg. The head comes first, because he's the head. Oh, okay. So he was like this floating head, waiting for his body to be added to him. So the doctor only slapped my cheek when uh, three weeks after my head was born. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> okay, so I'm hoping that what we're trying to do is just to get you to, to force you to look at whatever you thought was true again. Just look at it from outside the box. Because that linear timeline became something that kept us in bondage, captive. Okay, we want to be free from that. So what we want to do is we want to see things from his perspective, not our perspective. That's why he gave us the Bible. So that we could change our perspective. We begin the walk and we see him and everything else and everybody else from our perspective. As we grow in the knowledge of God... We change to see everything from his perspective. Okay. So now, I'm just going to round this off so that we can go to grace. Is there time on the planet Pluto? It's not a planet. Okay. No. Well, now it is. <laughs> <laughs> you have declared it so. <laughs> the, the, difference, the, the difference between a star and a planet has no consequence on my life whatsoever. Fair enough. Anyway. Just Pluto. Okay, Pluto. <laughs> We're not going to call it Pluto. Does time function in any way there? No. But if I took Nico and I put him on Pluto, he would still grow older. So because he's there... Time would be there, even if he didn't have a watch. But before Adam and Eve sinned, were they going to die or not? Yes or no? So time is a consequence of the fall. Time itself is a consequence of the fall of man. Especially in the sense of time leading to decay. Because with Adam and Eve, there would still be day and night. There could still even be seasons. But nothing was dying. So there would be time in the sense of existing, but it wouldn't lead to death. Or decay. If we were still living in the garden and all the food, all the what everything was provided, think about it for a moment. If you didn't have to provide or plan ahead for anything, if everything was provided, how much would time matter? 
So he never got hungry, never got thirsty, never had to wait for anything to be supplied or provided. So we have to stop projecting our perspective of time in time on God and on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom right now. But for some reason we're thinking that everybody in the kingdom of heaven is waiting for us all to die so that uh, we can all get there. Okay, so now, if all the believers that are sleeping in Messiah, do you know that the Bible says that those who have died sleep in Messiah? Mm-hmm. Or just sleep. So there was the resurrection on the day of his crucifixion. That's when Jacob was resurrected, Right? That's why we can see Moses and, and Elijah and everybody. Some of them were just taken away. Some of them were resurrected. There was that resurrection. But everybody else since then that has died, till the white throne judgment, in the, in, in the confines of the concept of time, are sleeping in Messiah. Keep that in mind. Now, what happens to heaven when all of us wake up and we invade heaven? We never, we've got to get these concepts because all of these concepts are attached to the false gospel. Well, luckily, I mean, the Lord says He's going back to prepare a place for us because it was probably like, okay, you guys can't come now because like, there's not space for you yet. So I'm just going to go like, sort that out and then you guys can invade once you're all resurrected. So without us realizing it, most of us has a concept of heaven still being under construction. It's a construction site at the moment. Building all our mansions. <laughs> Just think about it. That's what we inevitably think heaven is. Without really focusing on it, we're thinking that it's a construction site. And the heaven, kingdom of heaven will only become the kingdom when I get there. Now that's why this concept that we're going to show you today becomes extremely important. Now that, let's go back to the question. Does this say that the church or the body is the fullness of Messiah? Yes or no? Don't think about the consequences or interpretation. Does it say it? Yes or no? That's how we do our Bible study. We decide on one thing without an opinion, without a preference. We just decide on what it says. It says that. I don't understand it, but I can accept that that's what it said. Then the Holy Spirit will start to explain it to us and reveal it to us. Right. Now, you can take us to keep these things in mind because the reason why we've got that on the board is if it says there that all things have been put under His feet. What things did He write that in? Was that? And He put all things under His feet and gave them. Mm. What things is it? You're not to answer. Okay, think back on what you know about the last 2,000 years of world history. Does it look like the scripture is true? Clearly, all of his enemies have been put under his feet. They have no rule or reign, no influence on the earth or humanity whatsoever. You know what really um, fascinates me? I cannot help but giggle. We all know these guys... In the same breath, 
They will quote the scripture, all things have been put under his feet. Then they will quote the scripture, says all things are put under our feet. And then they will start to bind yes, and rebuke. the demonic that has been put under his feet. They do that in one prayer, one breath. Okay, like, where's your logics? What are you doing? If it's been put under his feet, why are you binding Satan? If it worked, then why is he still around? So this must be true. Even We've got to figure out how it is true. That's what we've got to figure out. It must be true because the Bible says it. All things were put under his feet. Yet for 2,000 years on the earth, within time, it doesn't look like it was put under his feet at all. Are people still murdering? Stealing? Are they still opening satanic churches in Cape Town? Yes, they are. So has all things been put under his feet? So, but we have to believe it's true because the Bible says so. Now let's go to the revelation of how it works. You can take us to Hebrews. Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Now for those of you that's been here a long time, you know this by heart, we have to knit these things together again. Remember the framework of the gospel. We're build, busy building a framework. And remember the golden rule. Whenever we witness to the gospel, never ever witness out of what you understand. Always immediately refer back to what is written. You use your understanding to show what is written. That's how we witness. Use your understanding to show what is written. Never speak to somebody in testifying out of your understanding. It's the Word of God that's living and powerful. Okay, always remember this. Go go for it. Just the Abraham vision. Okay. Okay, so we're going to pick it up at verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I'm going to read that again, because this is key. Yeah, 10. It's going to be 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Again, one of those situations when we now just have to decide on what this verse says. Not how we understand it, just what it says. So, the New Jerusalem was not an idea yet. Abraham has basically just come into a land that is still belonging to other nations, the Canaanites. There's no Jerusalem. And here it says he had his eyes fixed on the city that was built by God. And why is this important? Because this is the chapter on faith. If we want to define and understand faith, this is the chapter that explains faith. And it starts off with, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This brings us to another concept 
that Christianity has managed to Taint. defile faith itself. Mm. This chapter will tell you exactly what faith is. And it says that faith, the, the definition of faith, has to have something to do with the fact that Abraham saw the new Jerusalem. Now we've got to get rid of the concept of heaven in general. Because the new Jerusalem is this. We are living stones being built in. Now remember the construction site problem. It was in, if it is still under construction, then in Abraham's time, they hadn't even dug the foundations yet. So what was he looking at? It says he was looking at the city. So the city is eternal. So he's not looking at half a city. And if we are the living stones being built into the city, and we are the fullness of Messiah, then he's looking at something that is going to change our gospel. And why does Abraham know about the New Jerusalem? Now you can read um, the rest, yeah. Okay. Skip to verse 13. These all died in faith. So he's talking about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So it's very clear that the Bible very clearly states that these faith fathers were all aware of the resurrection. Because how do you how do you get what is what is the requirement for us to believe that we're going to get to heaven? Does anybody come to the Father except through Messiah? Is there salvation in anyone else? Is there any other way for eternal life to be inherited? Only through Messiah. So if they had their heart set, the substance of their faith being that they would one day be resurrected into eternal life in a city, in a homeland that was prepared for them, then they had to have a revelation of the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Cannot be any other way. And then it's proven here. Can you show us how it's proven? Isaac and Moses. Isaac and Moses? Oh, okay, yes, okay. We pick it up at verse 17. I want to go back to the beginning. Okay. <clears throat> By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding 
that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. <laughs> so Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, not because he believed he was going to lose Isaac, but because he was confident that God would raise him up. That's why he was willing to sacrifice him. So it wasn't one of those, okay, well, God asked, so I just, you know, love God so much and I'm so faithful. I'm just going to do what he says, even though I don't understand why. He really did understand why, and he had full confidence of what God was able to do. And now, very interesting revelation on what happened with Moses. Mm. So we'll go all the way down. Um, it's speaking about Moses. I'm just going to read verse 26. We're picking up in the middle of a thought. It says, Moses esteeming the reproach of Messiah greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Did the Bible just say that Moses believed in Messiah? Clearly said it. Clearly said it. Moses believed in Messiah. Okay, now it's at this point that you need to reconsider why we need to change everything that we've been taught. Because, remember the linear timeline. By giving us a linear timeline, they went and divided God's plan and all God's work into Old Testament and New Testament, and then they told us it's two different covenants. So the people, for some reason, nobody understands it, nobody can explain it, but for some reason they, we all had to believe that the people in the Old Testament were saved in another way than we are. Moses believed in Messiah, the Lamb of God. Yes or no? See why we have to bend their timeline to get rid of the lies. So, Abraham and Moses and Abel and King David were in what we call now as the New Covenant. That changes everything. It changes everything we ever believed. And it explains why our sins can be forgiven, both the sins that we have been forgiven of, and the sins that we will still commit. That explains it. Okay, now, let's go from there. We're going to go to grace. Um, I'm going to throw verse 23 in there we're here and it fits in well. So it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. <laughs> okay. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. Enter the beautiful child. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect timing. <laughs> Okay, so it's a weird verse in here because, I mean, like Pharaoh <laughs> is murdering all the children and then these parents go, now our baby is beautiful, you cannot kill him and we're going to protect him because of his beauty. <laughs> strange, I think, okay. So I did a study about this a while back and actually the word beautiful was probably just, so... The original word obviously wouldn't have made sense in its meaning to the people who translated the Bible. So they looked at synonyms of what it could mean and then this seemed to fit uh, the best of what they could possibly understand. 
But if you go look at the word that was translated beautiful and you go back to its original meaning, it actually means uh, something in the lines of so beautiful, but in the sense of someone that's sophisticated. And the actually the word is, it means someone who's from the city. So if you have someone that comes from the city and goes to like a rural area, then they would be sophisticated, beautiful, dressed properly, that kind of thing. But so the, the original word is actually from the city. So if we read it here, it says that his parents hid him for three months because they saw that he was from the city, a child from the city. Wow. <laughs> right? Which makes much more sense if we look at the outside of time truth. And we've been looking at that and we've been looking at the New Jerusalem and saying that we are living stones being built in. It would make much more sense for his parents to go, this child is from the city. We need to protect him and hide him for the purposes that God has. Rather than just going, our baby is beautiful, fairy cannot kill him. <laughs> because then surely most of the parents would have had that attitude most parents I'm assuming think their baby is the most beautiful baby in the world you would have had a whole <laughs> river Nile full of babies <laughs> right so now go back to verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 11 it says, by faith, this is Moses, by faith, by faith, by faith. Now, what did we say? What was the definition of faith? It was Abraham had a revelation of the New Jerusalem city and where he was on his way to. It says that Moses, by faith, forsook, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. See, now that verse starts to make sense. Okay. Now out of this perspective, we can start to look at what grace really is. You're going to just take us through that. That's all we need to still do. So, we know that. Oh, there's the pop shield back on. Okay. So, we know that grace seems to be a, a relatively, in the Bible context, a New Testament concept. The Lord is spoken of as being gracious, but the truth of grace, as we understand now, especially in the sense of unmerited favor, doesn't really seem to fit in the Old Testament. Maybe first read the dispensation of grace scripture before we go there, so that okay. we just fit that puzzle piece. Because what they have done is they've, they've taken this piece of scripture and applied it in the extremely wrong way. Mm. Okay, so in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 1 just so we can follow what Paul is saying. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Yeshua for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, and then he continues his thought. Okay. So, and then he's going to explain that revelation was given to him and understanding was given to him of the mysteries so that he could explain it to them. 
That's all. We'll get okay. back now. We'll get back. Okay. So, because of this and because of the way grace has been interpreted, grace seems to be a very uh, modern, and modern I mean the last 2,000 years, uh, biblical concept. When in actual fact, and uh, this we demonstrated now from Hebrews chapter 11 with the word beautiful, Oftentimes, if we want to gain greater understanding and depth of understanding in biblical concepts and truths, especially big truths like grace and faith, uh, it would be wise to go back and see what the original word and translations were. Simply because we also understand that God gave the Hebrew language specifically to the Israelites uh, because hidden in it was certain messages and concepts and uh, practices and truth that he actually gave them along with their language. So he could teach them about himself in the language that he gave them because of what specific words meant, uh, how it was applicable to them and how they could walk it out. And so if we go look at the origin of the word grace, we end up with a very, very, very simple concept. So um, it's, it's actually a very ancient word and concept. So where it came from is in Abraham's day and even a bit before and a bit after, uh, there were a lot of pilgrims that would travel through the wilderness. And uh, much like the food trackers of our recent history, uh, because they were traveling through the wilderness, obviously when they were camping, there would be a lot of danger, like wild animals, uh, robbers and thieves, the basic dangers you find in a desert. And obviously because they didn't have constructed buildings, then they only had tents that they uh, stayed in, because obviously it wasn't the safest setup. So, to increase security, what they would do is, when they get to a place where they would camp, and this could be for a night or for months or for years, they would pitch their tents in a circular formation. And I'm just going to draw a very small group of campers now. because, yeah. Okay, so they would pitch their tents in a circular formation. And the reason they would, yes? They were generally nomads. So we've got to understand that these people, the moment that Abraham left the city, their history for the longest time would be as nomads. Mm -hmm. Okay? So they didn't have a fixed address. If you want to, to post things, something could take a while. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they would pitch their tents in a circular formation. The reason they would do this is because the tents would then form a wall structure. And then on the inside, at night, they would put all of their cattle, their sheep, their oxen, all the women and children, and everyone would be on the inside, and they would be safe from the outside. So on the outside, there's wilderness, which means there's, like I said, wild animals, predators, thieves, uh, not really any food. We get the idea of general chaos and danger on the outside, but on the inside, it's safe. Okay, so the original word for, for grace in its Aramaic Hebrew form was chen. And you spell it C-H-E-N. And it comprised of only two letters uh, that originated from the pictograph 
alphabet, so from the picture language. And these two pictures were, I can't remember the order, but I think it's the wall that looks like this. And I'm drawing skew now, obviously rotated like 30 degrees. And a seed. Okay, so this is a picture for a wall, and this is a picture for a seed. So this would be a seed for a plant that would grow and then reproduce, or a human kind of seed. Okay. So anything that would reproduce and then multiply. Okay, so this is the word that comprised of these two letters that would form this picture. So this, if you put them together, you get that. So really what we have is that grace, in its original form, the very original form of the word grace, meant the wall that protects the seed. And really what it meant is that there would be a wall, the wall formation of the tents, would protect everything that's inside so that the family can continue. So that they can continue to multiply and grow. Okay. And so this is where grace originated, the concept and idea and truth of grace. Which is actually very, very, very amazing. And we're going to look at why it's so amazing, especially when we start tracing the picture of grace through the Bible. So the very first manifestation or illustration or demonstration from God's side about grace, or of grace, is the picture of the Garden of Eden. Okay, wait. Oh. Just work that out. Oh. Oh, okay, so I can draw. Okay. Did you write that down? Okay, just sketch. Then wipe, wipe this out again. Okay. On the clear picture. So shall I wipe that this as well. And then start in the Hebraic way this time from the back to the front. Start with New Jerusalem. Because okay. we just looked at the fact that it was there. Okay. <clears throat> so, since faith is New Jerusalem and the city that has foundations, and we've looked at uh, the Book of Life, we're going to start with the illustration, demonstration, and manifestation of grace as the New Jerusalem, which I'm going to draw as a cube because it says in Revelation that it's width and length and height or breadth is all the same. Okay. Okay, now connected with the scripture of blessing you know the width and the so that you can know the width and the oh, length. Okay. Yes, okay. So now if we go in Ephesians um let this fell off again, but that's probably fine. Okay. Pick it up later. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 2, 3, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> okay, we're going to read from verse 14. And just, if you keep this concept of New Jerusalem in mind, and you keep the truth of faith in mind, let's see what Paul writes here to them. So he's now come from explaining the gospel, and then he said in chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, he explained the New Jerusalem that we are all living stones being built in. And then he goes through the mystery of Messiah and the fellowship of the mystery. And then we get to verse 14 where he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Yahushua HaMashiach, 
from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith, okay, faith, quickly, connect the faith truth, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Messiah which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness we said this was the fullness from chapter 1 Of God. So I hope that piece of scripture just changed to all of you. So that's the gospel. When he says so that you may with all the saints, it's exactly what we saw in Hebrews 11, where their faith came from, so that we may see and have the same, and behold with them and see with them and understand with them. So that is New Jerusalem again. Okay, now we see grace from there. Okay, now, so grace as New Jerusalem, so remember the grace picture, the wall that protects the seed on the inside from everything that's on the outside. Okay, so New Jerusalem becomes the final manifestation of this, where everyone that will ever be saved, everyone whose names are written in the book of life, everyone that in the end is found in Messiah forms part of the New Jerusalem. If you are outside of Messiah, then you are not in the New Jerusalem. Okay, then judgment. Okay. So, think what you know about the New Jerusalem. Does it have a wall? Does it have gates? Remember. So, that's why we can connect the grace picture of the, the wall that surrounds the protector seed. Yes. Ultimately, the ultimate picture in the Bible is New Jerusalem. Okay. And it says nothing can enter that will defile all of that. You can go read those scriptures in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Okay, so this is the... I did this again. Fullness of the two L's. Okay, final picture of grace. Can I now go back to the beginning? Okay, so now we go back to the beginning, the very first picture of grace, and the very first picture of grace that God shows us in his wonderful plan is the Garden of Eden. So if you go read, in the book of Genesis, when God creates, it says he creates man out of the dust of the earth, and then he takes Adam, and he puts him inside the garden. Okay, so he didn't create the garden, then out of the dust of the earth, in the garden, create Adam, and then he was just created in the garden. He was created outside of the garden, and then God took him and placed him inside the garden of Eden. And inside the garden of Eden was perfect provision, no death, uh, security, comfort, God's manifest presence, everything that they could ever need was provided for them inside the garden. Nothing ever died. The animals weren't eating. Animals weren't eating any other animals, etc., etc. Now, pause. Think of what you have always done whenever you have thought of the garden. 
Who pictured the garden as a triangle? Anybody? No. Did anybody picture the garden as a circle before? Put up your hand if you always pictured a circle. What a coincidence. Okay, so God takes Adam and puts it in the garden. So here's Adam now inside the garden, and inside the garden, he tells them, Go forth, multiply. Okay, but now let's remember because we're looking at grace. Where does he take him from to put him in the garden? Outside. What's outside? The world. The world. So is that a picture of salvation? So what's outside? We don't know, but definitely not everything that's inside. That's why it puts them inside. So chaos. Once they leave the garden, they have to now uh, toll for their food, work the ground, and it says the ground's going to resist them. So by the sweat of their brow, they're going to have to eat which means that there is now no longer a perfect provision. They have to worry about where they're going to get their food. They have to worry about where they're going to sleep at night. God's manifest presence isn't with them the way it was in the garden. We see he still speaks with them, but we know things change once they leave the garden. So, and they leave the garden because they ate from the tree, and this is also a form of judgment. So, outside versus inside. Okay. Then, if we fast forward a little bit, not too far into the future, but a little bit, we have the story of Noah. And if you go read in the story of Noah, it says that God was uh, looking at humanity and they had grown evil and he was upset that, you know, he um, regretted that he had made them and um, etc., etc. And then it says, but Noah found grace in the sight of God. Noah found grace, grace specifically, in the sight of God. And then if we look at the story of Noah and what God does, he tells Noah to build an ark. Because why? Because he's going to send judgment upon the earth, and everyone is going to die, and he needs to get inside the ark, because guess what? Inside the ark, he is going to be safe. I'm sure this isn't what the ark looked like, but you get the idea. What is outside? So once they get inside the ark, what's outside the ark? Chaos, judgment, destruction. Judgment is outside. Judgment being the main idea here. If we follow through, we're going to see judgment is the main idea of that which is outside. And salvation is the idea of that which is inside. So inside the ark, they are safe. Show us quickly where God is. Okay, go to, just make a note, don't page there now. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, so the ark's finished, here comes the rain. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household. Come into the ark. Where's God? Inside. Inside. Otherwise, you would have said, Go, go into the ark. You go. Come into the ark. How are we saved? We're baptized into Messiah. So this is the gospel. The ark is the gospel. It's going to be judgment. The only safe place is in Messiah. 
And then when it's done, in chapter 8, verse 16, when it stopped raining and they can leave, God says, go out of the ark. Go. Did he seal them in? Yes. yes. In, in chapter 7, verse 16, it says, and the Lord shut him in. So they get into the ark. They don't close the door. God shuts them inside. So he closes them, protects them. He's with them in the ark where they are safe. And when they come out, new creation. Right. Okay. <clears throat> then we fast forward again a little bit. And then we have Abraham. I'm too scared to draw Abraham because like... Uh, uh. Go with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll go with... <laughs> We, when we went to Uganda, we draw him as a superhero. So he yeah, had like this. And then he had a cape. And he was S for Seed Man. <laughs> superhero. Okay. Seed Man, why? <clears throat> because God makes the promise to Abraham's seed. He says, An Isaac, your seed shall be called. And uh, then we know that later they multiply, and as the seed of Isaac multiplies, they eventually become the Hebrew people. But then when we see uh, the Gentiles being brought in, and Galatians is a very good letter that explains this truth. It says that everyone who is of faith are sons of Abraham. And so we become this, in Romans chapter 9, beginning of chapter 9, it says that we are the true Israel, uh, those who are of faith, those who believe. And so we become the true seed of Abraham. So in Abraham, the seed is called and the promise is made to the seed. And then eventually in Galatians, it says, and that seed is Messiah. Now that brings us back here. Okay, so I don't have time to explain the whole Messiah thing now. But since we are all baptized into Messiah, if the promise and the seed is Messiah, then by extent, we are that. Okay, so Abraham. Then... So then they multiply, they go to Egypt, then they come out of Egypt. And then we have the nation of Israel traveling with God for 40 years in the wilderness, and he is the cloud above them and the column of fire that surrounds them. And we know that uh, the first place where we see this very practically work out is where the uh, Israelites are on their way out of Egypt and they get to the sea. And then Pharaoh comes from behind to come and kill them. And then the cloud, the pillar of fire, goes back and forms a wall of fire between the Israelites and the Egyptians, protecting them from the death and the wrath of Pharaoh to give them time enough to do what? To move through the sea so that they can get to the promised land. Okay, so through the ocean. And that represents the picture of baptism so clearly as well. Okay, so we have that protecting wall that protects them, gives them time enough to move through the water to safety. Whenever you have imagined the 2.2 odd million Israelites in the wilderness with the tabernacle, what configuration do you imagine? A do triangle? Perfect square. What do you imagine? Same picture, right? 
So we have traveling under the cloud. We know these truths. We just haven't verbalized them. Okay, next. Okay. So and also uh, while they travel through the wilderness, we also know that the cloud and the column of fire actually protects them from the Amalekites, Philistines, Canaanites, all of those trying to. And if anyone falls behind or moves outside, it says that then the column and the cloud actually no longer protects them and sometimes even consumes them. Okay. Right, then, fast forward, eventually they get to the promised land. And now, Israel is like long, so I'm just going to draw it like that. Now they're in the promised land. Okay, so now the promised land itself becomes the picture of grace. Because inside the promised land, they, um, the ground is fertile. Their animals are fertile. They're doing well. Everyone's healthy. There's no. There's literally like scriptures that say, as long as they walk in the ways of God, there will be no miscarriage. There will be no illness. People will die of old age. They won't die of any deformities or any kind of hectic uh, illnesses. And so we see this picture repeating itself, where it's perfect provision in the promised land of God, as long as they walk in the ways of God. So that's the picture of grace. <coughs> So you are aware that um, several times in the year, the, all the men mm. had to go up to Jerusalem where the tabernacle was and then the temple to go and present themselves to the Lord. Now, wouldn't this be the perfect time for their enemies to attack them? See, this picture of the perfect promised land with God being their protector and provider and dwelling among them and with them, that would be a place where God's guarantee was you can leave your livestock, your land, your farms unattended. Your women and children. Nobody would harm you. Another picture of grace. And really it happened. It said that God would protect and the enemies that wanted to uh, attack at those times, there were reasons why they couldn't and didn't. Okay. And so this is basically what we have throughout the Old Testament, the big pictures. If you go look for smaller pictures, you can find them. And then <clears throat> we, I'm, I'm just calling it New Testament because of the way the Bible is constructed. The next picture we have is the picture of the cross. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Let's go back to Ephesians. Now, read to us the resurrection. And we've literally got 10 minutes, so we've got a yes. mission through this. Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> chapter 2. From verse 4 of Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yoshua. Pause. It's one of those moments where we're just going to decide on a yes or no answer. No interpretation, no opinion, a yes or no answer. Does it say that we were raised together, and together with Messiah we were raised, and seated in heavenly places in Messiah and together with Messiah. Does it say that, yes or no? Mm. See why outside of time becomes so important, because in time, over the last 2,000 years, several people had to be 
come into salvation and faith at different times. But Messiah was raised once. Isn't it important to understand then that we were raised with Messiah? So, when were you raised? According to the scripture, when he was raised. Remember, in Messiah, very important. So what would have happened if Noah built the ark, God said, come into the ark, and uh, Shem, in the meantime, decided to go to the shop, and it was a little bit late. Swimming. Daddy! Daddy! Okay, so... Go chew on that. It actually says we were raised with Messiah. Remember our names were written in the book of life before the foundations of the earth and raised with Messiah. It changes the gospel. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we see each other. It changes the way we act towards each other. It changes the concept of forgiveness and it changes the concept of, the, of how we can live in being forgiven. Acceptance. Okay. And then on the cross, he takes all the sin on him. Picture of grace. So that we can continue. And we, in his resurrection, are taken in him into resurrection. Grace. Okay, now. So, so it says, in specifically, in Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2, that we were buried with him in baptism, into death, so that we can be raised with Him by the glory of the Father. So that is the crucifixion and the resurrection. We are taken into Him in His death. We die with Him so that we can be resurrected with Him, in Him. Okay. Then, in our kind of timeline, after the cross to here, there's one picture left and it's that of it's the body. So what did we see? What is his fullness? The body. And who is his body? What is his body? So, now it's up to you to go and meditate on the impact the true definition of grace is going to make on everything that we know and who we are. See, if grace is Him, including us in Him, and it is the same picture as the seed. Remember, a landowner sowed a good seed in his land. He provided from the very beginning, the very beginning, He provided a clear picture of grace. This is the true understanding of grace. And then why is it extremely important? Because if we are in this time of the body, representing everything that is grace, everything that is faith, before the next step that goes to, well, the thousand year reign will come and then New Jerusalem. But that becomes extremely important. 
because it changes the way we fellowship, the way we do church, the way we do everything, then it becomes about the body. Now next week we're going to look again at the Holy Spirit in connection with grace and the body so that we can understand the Holy Spirit better. And by doing all of this, we help those that we're going to testify to. We want to help them get rid of the false timeline. The false timeline has bound us in the flesh and has kept believers from walking in the Spirit. That's what the false timeline did. The false timeline forced the church to formulate a gospel that doesn't make sense. So our witness that we are developing, that's why we have to build a very very solid framework of truth in us. Our ministry is to be part of the end day prophecy that says the gospel will be preached, the true gospel. And it's the gospel of the kingdom. Do you see the gospel of the kingdom? Mm -hmm. From Genesis to Revelation, all the way through. God's plan never changed. God's plan has always been the same. His will has always been the same. And we his can be secure. Us has always been the same. We can be absolutely secure, and it means that we can now start moving towards Ephesians chapter four. If you can just read to us the culmination of all that we're going to do on earth as the body. Okay, Ephesians chapter four. Can I read from eleven? Mm. Okay, from verse eleven. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying, edifying means building up. For the edifying of the body of Messiah. Until... We all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Till we all come to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah. Again, the body image that represents grace. So all the ministering work, all the works of the saints, all the work of ministry should lead to this. And so that is why all of us have to equip to be able to testify and to witness to the true gospel. Okay. It becomes complicated and then becomes real easy. Have you noticed that grace and faith becomes the same thing? And if we look at righteousness, it's still the same thing. So our faith, it becomes real complicated, and then it becomes really, really easy. Okay. Amen. We will have a few minutes for questions. Those who want to go, at this point, we release you. You can go. We always give a little bit of time so that if something was unclear, you wanted to have something cleared up, we can have some time for that. I want to just speak to the to the parents
The children noises here is wonderful. Mm. We love it and it is a blessing. Mm. If you want to teach something to your children, take this picture and start, don't think that they can't grasp these things. This is actually what children should be taught. Because they will grow up with a deep security in them, a substance that they are okay, they're safe. That if God's Word was the same thing from Genesis to Revelation, if God's plan had always been the same, then they will end up with a, an idea and understanding of God that's correct. <laughs> and their lives will look different. They'll be secure. And sure of an almighty sure. God. This picture can really be taught to anybody of any age, any understanding. Okay, so, questions.